Chapter 2, Section 1 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero, translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 2, Religious Architecture. Section 1, Materials, Principles of Construction. In the civil and military architecture of ancient Egypt, brick played the principal part, but in the religious architecture of the nation, it occupied a very secondary position. The pharaohs were ambitious of building eternal dwellings for their deities, and stone was the only material which seemed sufficiently durable to withstand the ravages of time and man. 1. Materials and Principles of Construction it is an error to suppose that the Egyptians employed only large blocks for building purposes. The size of their materials varied very considerably according to the uses for which they were destined. Architraves, drums of columns, lintel stones and door jams were sometimes of great size. The longest architraves known, those, namely, which bridge the nave of the hypostyle hall of Karnak, have a mean length of 30 feet. They each contain 40 cubic yards, and weigh about 65 tonnes. Ordinarily, however, the blocks are not much larger than those now used in Europe. They measure, that is to say, about 2.5 to 4 feet in height, from 3 to 8 feet in length, and from 2 to 6 feet in thickness. Some temples are built of only one kind of stone, but more frequently materials of different kinds are put together in unequal proportions. Thus, the main part of the temples of Abydos consists of very fine limestone, but in the temple of Seti I, the columns, architraves, jams, and lintels, all parts in short where it might be feared that the limestone would not offer sufficient resistance, the architect has had recourse to sandstone, while in that of Ramesses II, sandstone, granite, and alabaster were used. At Karnak, Luxor, Tanis, and Memphis, similar combinations may be seen, at the Ramesseum, and in some of the Nubian temples, the columns stand on massive supports of crude brick. The stones were dressed more or less carefully, according to the positions they were to occupy. When the walls were of medium thickness, as in most partition walls, they are well wrought on all sides. When the wall is thick, the core blocks were roughed out as nearly cubic as might be, and piled together without much care the hollows being filled up with smaller flakes, pebbles, or mortar. Casing stones were carefully wrought on their faces, and the joints dressed for two-thirds or three-quarters of the length, the rest being merely picked with a point. The largest blocks were reserved for the lower parts of the building, and this precaution was the more necessary because the architects of Pharaonic times sank the foundations of their temples no deeper than those of their houses. At Karnak, they are not carried lower than from seven to ten feet. At Luxor, on the side anciently washed by the river, three courses of masonry, each measuring about two and a half feet in depth, form a great platform on which the walls rest, while at the Ramesseum, the brickwork bed on which the colonnade stands, does not seem to be more than ten feet deep. These are but slight depths for the foundations of such great buildings, but the experience of ages proves that they are sufficient. The hard and compact humus of which the soil of the Nile Valley is composed contracts every year after the subsidence of the inundation, and thus becomes almost incompressible. As the building progressed, the weight of the superincumbent masonry gradually became greater 
till the maximum of pressure was attained and a solid basis secured. Wherever I have bared the foundations of the walls, I can testify that they have not shifted. The system of construction in force amongst the ancient Egyptians resembles in many respects that of the Greeks. The stones are often placed together with dry joints and without the employment of any binding contrivance, the masons relying on the mere weight of the materials to keep them in place. Sometimes they are held together by metal cramps, or sometimes, as in the temple of Seti I at Abydos, by dovetails of sycamore wood bearing the cartouche of the founder. Most commonly, they are united by a mortar joint, more or less thick. All the mortars of which I have collected samples are thus far of three kinds. The first is white and easily reduced to an impalpable powder, being of lime only. The others are grey and rough to the touch, being mixtures of lime and sand, while some are of a reddish colour owing to the pounded brick powder with which they are mixed. A judicious use of these various methods enabled the Egyptians to rival the Greeks in their treatment of regular courses, equal blocks and upright joints in alternate bond. If they did not always work equally well, their shortcomings must be charged to the imperfect mechanical means at their disposal. The enclosure walls, partitions and secondary facades were upright, and they raised the materials by means of a rude kind of crane planted on the top. The pylon walls and the principal facades, and sometimes even the secondary facades, were sloped at an angle which varied according to the taste of the architect. In order to build these, they formed inclined planes, the slopes of which were lengthened as the structure rose in height. These two methods were equally perilous, for however carefully the blocks might be protected while being raised, they were constantly in danger of losing their edges or corners, or of being fractured before they reached the top. Thus, it was almost always necessary to rework them, and the object being to sacrifice as little as possible of the stone, the workmen often left them of the most abnormal shapes. They would level off one of the side faces, and then the joint, instead of being vertical, leaned askew. If the block had neither height nor length to spare, they made up the loss by means of a supplementary slip. Sometimes, even, they left a projection which fitted into a corresponding hollow in the next upper or lower course. Being, first of all, expedients designed to remedy accidents, these methods degenerated into habitually careless ways of working. The masons who had inadvertently hoisted too large a block no longer troubled themselves to lower it back again, but worked it into the building in one or the other of the ways before mentioned. The architect neglected to duly supervise the dressing and placing of the blocks. He allowed the courses to vary, and the vertical joints, two or three deep, to come one over the other. The rough work done, the masons dressed down the stone, reworked the joints, and overlaid the hole with a coat of cement or stucco, coloured to match the material, which concealed the faults of the real work. The walls rarely end with a sharp edge. Bordered with a torus, around which a sculpted ribbon is entwined, they are crowned by the carvetto cornice, surmounted by a flat band, or, as at Semne, by a square cornice, or, as at Medinet Habu, by a line of battlements. Thus framed in, the walls looked like enormous panels, each panel complete in itself, without projections, and almost without openings. Windows, always rare in Egyptian architecture, are mere ventilators when introduced into the walls of temples, being intended to light the staircases, as in the second pylon of Horemheb at Karnak, or else to support decorative woodwork on festival days. 
The doorways project but slightly from the body of the buildings, except where the lintel is overshadowed by a projecting cornice. Real windows occur only in the pavilion of Medinet Habu. But that building was constructed on the model of a fortress and must rank as an exception among religious monuments. The ground level of the courts and halls was flagged with rectangular paving stones, well enough fitted, except in the intercolumniations, where the architects, hopeless of harmonising the lines of the pavement with the curved bases of the columns, have filled in the space with small pieces set without order or method. Contrary to their practice when house-building, they have scarcely ever employed the vault or arch in temple architecture. We nowhere meet with it except at Deir el-Bahari, and in the seven parallel sanctuaries at Abydos. Even in these instances, the arch is produced by corbelling. That is to say, the curve is formed by three or four superimposed horizontal courses of stone, chiselled out to the form required. The ordinary roofing consists of flat paving slabs. Where the space between the walls was not too wide, these slabs bridged over at a single stretch. Otherwise, the roof had to be supported at intervals, and the wider the space, the more these supports needed to be multiplied. The supports were connected by immense stone architraves on which the roofing slabs rested. The supports are of two types, the pillar and the column. Some are cut from single blocks, thus the monolithic pillars of the Temple of the Sphinx. The oldest hitherto found measure 16 feet in height by 4.5 feet in width. Monolithic columns of red granite are also found among the ruins of Alexandria Bubastis and Memphis, which date from the reigns of Horemheb and Ramesses II, and measure some 20 to 26 feet in height. But columns and pillars are commonly built in courses, which are often unequal and irregular, like those of the walls which surround them. The great columns of Luxor are not even solid, two-thirds of the diameter being filled up with yellow cement, which has lost its strength and crumbles between the fingers. The capital of the column of Takhara, at Karnak, contains three courses, each about 48 inches high. The last and most projecting course is made up of 26 convergent stones, which are held in place by merely the weight of the abacus. The same carelessness which we have already noted in the workmanship of the walls is found in the workmanship of the columns. The quadrangular pillar, with parallel or slightly inclined sides, and generally without either base or capital, frequently occurs in tombs of the ancient empire. It reappears later in Medinet Habu, in the temple of Thothmes III, and again at Karnak, in what is known as the processional hall. The sides of these square pillars are often covered with painted scenes, while the front faces were more decoratively treated. Being sculpted with lotus or papyrus stems in high relief, as on the pilastile of Karnak, or adorned with a head of Hathor, crowned with the sistrum, as in the small spios of Abu Simbel or sculpted with a full-length standing figure of Osiris, as in the second court of Medinet Habu, or as a Dendera or Geber Bakal, with the figure of the god Bez. At Karnak, in an edifice which was probably erected by Horemheb, with building material taken from the ruins of a sanctuary of Amenhotep II and Third, the pillar is capped by a cornice, separated from the architrave by a thin abacus. By cutting away its four edges, the square pillar becomes an octagonal prism and further, by cutting off the eight new edges, it becomes a sixteen-sided prism. Some pillars in the tombs of Aswan and Beni Hassan, and in the processional hall at Karnak, as well as in the chapels of Deir el-Bari, are of this type. Besides the forms thus regularly evolved, there are others of irregular derivation, with six, twelve, fifteen, or twenty sides, or verging almost upon a perfect circle. The portico pillars of the Temple of Osiris at Abydos 
come last in the series. The drum is curved, but not round, the curve being interrupted at both extremities of the same diameter by a flat stripe. More frequently, the sides are slightly channelled, and sometimes, as at Calabshire, the flutings are divided into four groups of five each by four vertical flat stripes. The polygonal pillar has always a large shallow plinth in the form of a rounded disc. At El Cab, it bears the head of Hathor, sculptured in relief upon the front, but almost everywhere else it is crowned with a simple square abacus, which joins it to the architrave. Thus treated, it bears a certain family likeness to the Doric column, and one understands how Jomard and Champollion, in the first ardour of discovery, were tempted to give it the scarcely justifiable name of Proto-Doric. The column does not rest immediately upon the soil. It is always furnished with a base like that of the polygonal pillar, sometimes square with the ground, and sometimes slightly rounded. This base is either plain or ornamented only with a line of hieroglyphs. The principal forms fall into three types, one, the column with campaniform, or lotus flower capital. Two, the column with lotus bud capital. Three, the column with Hathor head capital. One, columns with campaniform capitals. The shaft is generally plain or merely engraved with inscriptions or bas-reliefs. Sometimes, however, as at Medamot, it is formed by six large and six small colonnettes in alteration. In pharaonic times, it is bulbous, being curved inward at the base, and ornamented with triangles, one within another, imitating the large leaves which sheathe the sprouting plant. The curve is so regulated that the diameter at the base and the top shall be about equal. In the Ptolemaic period, the bulb often disappears, owing probably to Greek influences. The columns which surround the first court at Edfu rise straight from their plinths. The shaft always tapers towards the top. It is finished by three or five flat bands, one above the other. At Medamot, where the shaft is clustered, the architect has doubtless thought that one tie at the top appeared insufficient to hold a dozen colonnettes. He has therefore marked two other rings of bands at regular intervals. The campaniform capital is decorated from the spring of the curve with a row of leaves, like those which sheathe the base. Between these are figured shoots of lotus and papyrus in flower and bud. The height of the capital and the extent of its projection beyond the line of the shaft varied with the taste of the architect. At Luxor, the campaniform capitals are 11.5 feet in diameter at the neck, 18 feet in diameter at the top, and 11.5 feet in height. At Karnak, in the hypostyle hall, the height of the capital is 12.25 feet, and the greatest diameter 21 feet. A square die surmounts the whole. This die is almost hidden by the curve of the capital, though occasionally, as at Dendera, it is higher, and bears on each face a figure of the god Bess. The column with campaniform capital is mostly employed in the middle avenue of hypostyle halls, as at Karnak, the Ramesseum, and Luxor. But it was not restricted to this position, for we also find it in porticos, as at Medinet Habu, Edfu, and Philae. The processional hall of Thothmes III at Karnak contains one most curious variety. The flower is inverted like a bell, and the shaft is turned upside down, the smaller end being sunk into the plinth, while the larger is fitted to the wide part of the overturned bell. This ungraceful innovation achieved no success and is found nowhere else. Other novelties were happier, especially those which enabled the artist to introduce decorative elements taken from the flora of the country. In the earlier examples at Soleb, Sesaba, Babastus and Memphis, we find a crown of palm branches springing from the band, their heads being curved beneath the weight of the abacus. Later on, as we approach the Ptolemaic period, 
the date and the half-unfolded lotus were added to the palm branches under the ptolemies and the caesars the capital became a complete basket of flowers and leaves ranged row above row and painted in the brightest colours at edfu ombos and philae one would fancy that the designer had vowed never to repeat the same pattern in the same portico two columns with lotus bud capitals originally these may perhaps have represented a bunch of lotus plants the buds being bound together at the neck to form the capital the columns of beni hassan consist of four rounded stems those of the labyrinth of the processional hall of thothmoses the third and of medamot consist of eight stems each presenting a sharp edge on the outer side the bottom of the column is bulbous and set round with triangular leaves the top is surrounded by three or five bands a moulding composed of groups of three vertical stripes hangs like a fringe from the lowest band in the space between every two stems so varied a surface does not admit of hieroglyphic decoration therefore the projections were by degrees suppressed and the whole shaft was made smooth in the hypostyle hall at Gurneh, the shaft is divided in three parts the middle one being smooth and covered with sculptures while the upper and lower divisions are formed of clustered stems in the temple of khonsu in the aisles of the hypostyle hall of karnak and in the portico of medinet habu the shaft is quite smooth the fringe alone being retained below the top bands while a slight ridge between each of the three bands recalls the original stems the capital underwent a like process of degradation at beni hassan it is finely clustered throughout its height in the processional hall of thosmes the third at luxor and at medamot a circle of small pointed leaves and channelings around the base lessens the effect and reduces it to a mere grooved and truncated cone in the hypostyle hall at karnak at abydos at the ramesseum and at medinet habu various other ornaments as triangular leaves hieroglyphic inscriptions or bands of cartouches flanked by uraei fill the space thus unfortunately obtained neither is the abacus hidden as in the campaniform capital but stands out boldly and displays the cartouche of the royal founder three columns with hathor-headed capitals we find examples of the hathor-headed column dating from ancient times as at Deir el bari but this order is best known in buildings of the ptolemaic period as at contra latopolis philae and dendera the shaft and base present no special characteristics they resemble those of campaniform columns the capital is in two divisions below we have a square block bearing on each face a woman's head in high relief and crowned with a naos the woman has the ears of a heifer her hair confined over the brow by three vertical bands falls behind the ears and hangs long on the shoulders each head supports a fluted cornice on which stands a naos framed between two volutes and crowned by a slender abacus thus each column has for its capitals four heads of hathor seen from a distance it at once recalls the form of the sistrum so frequently represented in the bas-reliefs as held in the hands of queens and goddesses it is in fact a sistrum in which the regular proportions of the parts are disregarded the handle is gigantic while the upper part of the instrument is unduly reduced this notion so pleased the egyptian fancy that architects did not hesitate to combine the sistrum design with elements borrowed from other orders the foreheads of hathor placed above a campaniform capital furnished nectanebo with a composite type for his pavilion at philae 
I cannot say that the compound is very satisfactory, but the column is, in reality, less ugly than it appears in engravings. Shafts of columns were regulated by no fixed rules of proportion or arrangement. The architect might, if he chose, make use of equal heights with very different diameters, and, regardless of any considerations, apart from those of general harmony, might design the various parts according to whatever scale best suited him. The dimensions of the capital had no invariable connection with those of the shaft, nor was the height of the shaft dependent on the diameter of the column. At Karnak, the campaniform columns of the hypostyle hall measure 10 feet high in the capital and 55 feet high in the shaft, with a lower diameter of 11 feet 8 inches. At Luxor, the capital measures 11.5 feet, the shaft 49 feet, and the diameter at the spring of the base 11.25 feet. At the Ramesseum, the shaft and capital measure 35 feet, and the spring diameter is 6.5 feet. The lotus bud or clustered column gives similar results. At Karnak, in the aisles of the hypostyle hall, the capital is 10 feet high, the shaft 33 feet, and the base diameter 6 and 3 quarter feet. At the Ramesseum, the capital is 5.5 feet high, the shaft 24.5 feet, and the base diameter 5 feet 10 inches. We find the same irregularity as to architraves. Their height is determined only by the taste of the architect or the necessities of the building. So also with the spacing of columns. Not only does the intercolumnar space vary considerably between temple and temple, or chamber and chamber, but sometimes, as in the first court at Mednet Habu, they vary in the same portico. We have thus far treated separately of each type, but when various types were associated in a single building, no fixed relative proportions were observed. In the hypostyle hall at Karnak, the campaniform columns support the nave, while the lotus bud variety is relegated to the aisles. There are halls in the temple of Khonsu, where the lotus bud column is the loftiest, and others where the campaniform dominates the rest. In what remains of the metamod structure, campaniform and lotus bud columns are of equal height. Egypt had no definite orders like those of Greece, but tried every combination to which the elements of the column could be made to lend themselves. Hence, we can never determine the dimensions of an Egyptian column from those of one of its parts. End of chapter 2, section 1. Reading by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.